Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. Welcome to Star Talk Radio! We are live at the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York. Kings County, that is. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson, astrophysicist with the American Museum of Natural History, where I also serve as director of the Hayden Planetarium. And I'm here with my special guest, two-time shuttle astronaut Mike Massimino, and my co-host, Eugene Merman. Hello! You've got uh, two, your two special our guests. Two wonderful guests, Kristen Shaw and John Hodgman. Hello. Hello. We're talking about space and what it is to be up there and some of the latest discoveries, one of which is the Kepler 22b Goldilocks planet. And so, with the bartenders, we concocted a special drink for this evening called the Kepler 22b. Okay? That drink has blue curacao. Because that planet is in the Goldilocks zone where it can sustain liquid water. And so perhaps it has oceans, perhaps it has land, perhaps it has And life. alien bacteria. <laughs> so it's a mixture of blue curacao, green Midori, some vodka to make that sit up straight, and some... And some... Dirt. Yeah. Dirt. <laughs> Earth, like our planet, symbolizing exactly what it literally is. And a core of molten magma. It's got some ginger beer and... This will not be served with ice because the Goldilocks planet is at the right distance to not have ice. But it will be chilled, shaken, poured into a glass, and it'll be ice cold but with no ice. I'd like to snorkel yeah, can in that. I, can I have one? I'll use my drink ticket. Yeah, they gave me a drink ticket too. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to. Maybe a round for the panel? Sure, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah, you might not be allowed to drink in space, but you can totally drink here. Thank you. <laughs> so let me ask you, Mike, this icon image of the right stuff. Did you have to do all the things that we saw that the astronauts did in the movie The Right Stuff? Did you? Yeah, did to... you have an enema and everything? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what did you have to go through to, be, to become an when? astronaut? The enema question is about when? Earlier this evening. This evening yeah. <laughs> I don't remember The Right Stuff that clearly. <laughs> oh, yeah, enemas every day. I may be thinking of the wrong movie. That's why the movie was so long. So what, so what did they make you do? Did you have to, like, did you need desert training and you have to eat? Salamanders? Like, what did you have to do? No, we didn't. Because that's the only food in space. (laughs) (laughs) We don't really know what you're going to find up there. (laughs) But we have a feeling it might be salamanders. (laughs) Reptilian. And and hallucinogenic mushrooms. (laughs) So we're going to put you in a sweat lodge. I would imagine for you to actually come to the decision, I am going to seriously pursue a career in astronauting, was a big decision. How old were you when you made it? Uh, the for reals, the, not the, the like, for real. Like I want to pursue this. Yeah. I was about 21 years old. And what was your background at that point? You had gone to college. I was, I, actually, I saw the movie The Right Stuff. <laughs> My wife is here. She saw it with me. She can uh, attest to that. It's like we were. Yeah. Oh. And, uh, and that. That got me thinking again about what I wanted to do with my life, and I was a senior in college at that point, mm-hmm. and I decided to... Uh, what, were, what were you studying? Uh, literary theory? Uh, what? <laughs> I can't, what is this guy talking about? What were you? Yale words. I he didn't was go studying to Yale. mechanical See, engineering. Is, actually, I think this is why I became an astronaut, because the English stuff I couldn't yeah. handle. I don't even understand what he's saying, and I think he's speaking English. I, so I like the math better yeah. than I did the English stuff. I need a dictionary. And Mike became an astronaut in order to get as far away as possible from you nerds. 
What were you studying in college, sir? I was an industrial engineering student. Okay, and you decided that you wanted to be an astronaut, and so you... Right. It's a strange career path it, to pursue. It is, yeah, and you realize that it's probably not going to happen because lots of people apply and very few are lucky enough to get selected, but, you know, you figure, let me give it a try. And okay. That's what I you got to follow your dreams, right? you got to follow your dreams, just like you guys are doing, right? Yeah. yeah. I actually had a very similar thing because when I saw the born identity, I really wanted to forget everything and become a special agent. <laughs> And? And now that's what I am. I don't know why, but I'm so good at cooking. (laughs) So were you aware at the time of the dangers you might face? Because I think when they tell little kids, do you want to be an astronaut? They're not thinking I could get hit by an asteroid or micrometeoroid that'll blow a hole through me or that radiation from the sun will sterilize my gonads. This is not in... (laughs) I never knew any of that. Now as they a, tell me. As a father, I say that to my children all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so you're up there spacewalking. I did a whole segment for Nova on micrometeoroids going 18,000 miles an hour. And these, something this size going 18,000 miles an hour will put a hole through you like it's nobody's business. So were you thinking about this at the time? No. How likely or common is something like that? Are you just trying to retro-freak them out? Retro-freak. <laughs> <laughs> Or is that like a real thing that's like you're prepared I'm for? I'm glad I'm hearing about this on the ground. But even at the Hubble Space Telescope, when we got there, the antenna dish, for example, one of the high-gain antennas, graffiti. has a hole in it. What's that? Was there a lot of graffiti on it? Graffiti, graffiti yeah. yeah. No. Alien graffiti, graffiti, right? <laughs> no, I, that's secret. I can't tell you about the graffiti. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, you know, it had a hole in it. It had a hole in it, John, about the size of a, of a quarter. So something had wow. picked off that mirror. And if you ever get a chance to see the wide field camera, I don't know where they have it, Neil. I think it's probably in the Smithsonian somewhere, maybe in a back room. But if you ever see anything like that that's been in space, that's been exposed to space. It has battle scars. It has battle scars on it. And it has lots of dings, like Neil described, these small little rocks that hit the outside of that instrument. Its radiator was on the outside of the telescope when we removed it. So it was exposed and it got pegged. The Hubble telescope has what's called a safe mode because... Airplane mode? <laughs> No, it has to be completely off. All your cell phones <laughs> got to be completely off in space. You don't take any chance. You can't even play words with friends. So, we have the sun. We have Earth in orbit around the sun. Or so you claim. Uh, so I assert, it is true whether or not you believe in it. All right, Ayn Rand, keep talking. <laughs> so, as Mike noted, we share space with a lot of other things. In fact, the solar system is a shooting gallery with movements choreographed by the forces of gravity. Now, among those objects that orbit the sun are comets. Many of their orbits are highly elongated. They cross the orbit of the Earth. Comets, when they near the sun, heat evaporates their ice, and they deposit debris that had been mixed in with the ice along its entire journey. But near the sun, it gets shaken loose And so there's a debris trail that is behind it and precedes the moving comet. So even though these comets cross Earth's orbit, we don't hit them necessarily, but we'll go through the debris trail. And every time we go through a debris trail, it is a meteor shower. That's why certain nights of the year, and it's always the same nights of the year, like the Perseids in the summertime in August, because that's the time in our orbit where we were crossing the debris trail of a comet that had passed by. 
the Hubble telescope, when we go through debris trails, goes into what's called safe mode, where the lid covers the, the mirror, and we angle it down, and we expose the better side of it <laughs> to the universe. So that the, it won't actually hit the sensitive electronics and the mirror. A safe mode. And so we anticipate that in these periods of high meteoroid flux that we got to protect the hardware. So when you go up, Mike, then you would go up on a calmer time, right? Can you factor that in or are you You did go up. Whether or not they told you, they waited for like the stuff to ebb. Have you been hit by debris? Like, is that a thing that they talk about or that you are aware of? like, duck Mike! Watch out, here it comes. <laughs> this is you Houston, know, they... duh! <laughs> we do a couple things. While we're out spacewalking, we'll angle the shuttle at such an attitude that if, you know, we'd rather not get a person hit, so the shuttle will try to protect us. But we don't like the shuttle getting hit either. You know, that's, not a good, that's not a good thing. Was that the motto of your spaceship. mission? We'd rather not get a person we'd rather, hit. We'd rather get, a, rather get a person hit. We also have four spacewalkers, so if you lose one, you have three others. Sure. Now, that was a joke. They're like our, they're like, how many, they're like our how two many people units. go up per trip normally? Uh, we had seven on my cruise and four spacewalkers and three other guys. So the space station actually has maneuvering capability when the Air Force alerts them that there's a particle that would otherwise damage it structurally. The universe is firing a bullet at you. Put up the Astrodome. Yeah. Yeah, anything about the size of a softball, bocce ball size, we can track. If that's in the way, you can avoid it. We right. can actually but, track smaller than that, but it's classified. Sorry, I didn't know so that. So smaller Yeah, we stuff. don't tell astronauts. But it's a really small... <laughs> so that's right. Apparently not. I was so, to know. So the, the smaller the, stuff we don't know about. The yeah. particles yeah. are really it, there. Some of them are paint chips from long-lost dead satellites. Right. Some are... <laughs> that was like from, like, houses? <laughs> yeah. Paint yeah. chips yeah. from walls that fly around space. <laughs> what is the one thing that you think would surprise people about life in space? Ooh, yeah. Ooh. Because we know about the floating. I would imagine the boredom would be considerable, but no, maybe not. Actually, no, because the thing you have is you can look out that window and is nonstop entertainment. Looking, it's beautiful. Probably have Trivial Pursuit. Trivial Pursuit. We had movies. Movies. We had movies. You know, we were very busy for two weeks, but we got a couple extra days in space because the weather was bad in Florida. We couldn't land. You had to land in California. We did. How did you know that? Did you do some research? About you, Mike. Wow. That's amazing. I'm impressed. We did land in California. But those last couple days, we didn't have anything on our flight plan specifically to do except just hang around. Go so, to the moon? Go maybe? to the No, we can't. <laughs> yeah, are you allowed? I, I, if you have a day off, like, say, like, for me, right. if I had a day off somewhere, I could, like, drive to Ohio. But you, could you go to the moon? I, I would have loved like we to. Have two we, days can we go to visit? Kill. Please, can we go visit the space station? You know, no. Do they leave you enough you fuel? We have to... enough gas, right? To no, we don't moon. have enough fuel to get there. No. So, what movies yeah. did you watch? What do we watch? We watched Apollo 13, which is probably, which probably isn't the smartest thing as we're like kind of stuck up there to yeah. be watching. But we did yeah. watch that movie. And we watched Star Trek. It was actually when... Wait, which Star when Trek? That, the which one Star that Trek? came out, the, yeah, the kind of the one. new one, the one that came out two years ago. The awesome. The latest actually, one, the it came reboot. out when we were, it debuted in theaters when we were launching. Sure. And whoever, I forget who it was who made the movie, the... the J.J. Abrams. Yeah, I know. He, yeah, the uh, company, I want to give him credit. They Bad nice. Robot? Paramount. <laughs> One of those people sent us the movie. And we were able to watch, you know, like they, we got a. a what did they send it to you on? Like, did you DVD become a little afraid of Romulus? They sent a VHS up there for yeah, you? <laughs> I worked on a computer thing where, you know, it was loaded onto our computer. So, so it was a DVD. 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 Do, you have a, do you have internet? Do you have Wi Fi? 
You had the Wi-Fi? first tweets from space. Not when I was there. Did you tweet from space? But I did. The I first, the first one to tweet from space. Oh. Yeah. What was your first tweet? Like, I am in space. The first tweet from space, what I did tweet, it actually got mentioned on Saturday Night Live, which my kids were in there here too. And they can attest that they're in there. But they're not really so excited about this astronaut thing. I'm just annoying dad at home. Right, kids? Yeah. All right, so thanks, Daniel. But when they mentioned the Saturday Night Live thing, that got you guys excited, didn't it, kids? <laughs> when Saturday Night Live mentioned my tweet, and I said, well, they made fun of it because I said... Did you say, it's full of stars? I said, no, I said, launch was awesome. I said, launch was awesome. I'm feeling great. But what they said on Saturday Night Live was, here is the first tweet from space. Launch is awesome. You know, we've gone in 40 years from one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. So launch is awesome. So... <laughs> If this idiot ever this would, would be the first one to find life on another planet, jeez, dudes, aliens. <laughs> so, so that was that, that first tweet. But what, it, what really wasn't monumental is that my kids finally got excited about me being an astronaut because I got mentioned on Saturday Night Live. There it is. But I did tweet that we were all going to be talking here tonight, too. Oh, just yeah, so like over before and we got over again. I read just it. Before. I'm following you now. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. You are not following me. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! I love these bartenders. So Kepler 22B just got delivered to each of us. Thank you very much. I would like to propose a toast to Kepler 22B, the first of many planets we expect to find in the universe that could contain life, for better or for worse, just like us. (laughs) All right. To our eventual enslavement. (laughs) May we all find a good hiding spot. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the US on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more... FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any of you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel 
comes true. Welcome back to Star Talk Radio in the Bell House. I got two-time shuttle astronaut Mike Massimino, a, a local boy from Nassau County, Long Island. We got you. Eugene Merman, we're in your house here, the Bell yes, House. Yes, at my house. I live in a Kristen Shaw, space. That, welcome. You told me backstage you're recently engaged. Congratulations. Sorry, guys. <laughs> and John Hodgman. The one and only John Hodgman. He's been married for years. <laughs> so we've got Mike who like, fixes our telescope. But the telescope has a purpose, and other telescopes have purpose. And so we design them, we build them, we launch them, we service them, but at the end of the day, it's about discovering the universe. In there, we also have a telescope that is specifically tuned for finding Earth-like planets orbiting sun-like stars. And it's named after a famous German mathematician from 400 years ago, Johannes Kepler. Mm -hmm. He was the first guy. You're not going to read about this. It's there, but no one says this. Kepler was the first person... This is the original drummer of the Rolling Stones. <laughs> Literally, I promise you, you will not find that. <laughs> Kepler was the first human being to write down an equation that enabled you to predict phenomena in the universe. After Kepler, and then a little later, especially after Newton, the universe became a knowable place. Before then, everything was mysterious. It Tell was... that to the moon god. <laughs> and so Kepler has recently logged hundreds of planets. Kepler, the telescope, not the immortal guy. Not the guy who's now dead, yeah, right. right. So we named this telescope in honor of Kepler because he first wrote down the equation for the orbits of planets around the sun. So here we have this telescope. In the old days we would look for planets by the effect that that planet had on the movement of the sun around which it orbited. Because the planet's too dim, you can't see it. So you'd see the star jiggle, okay? Sometimes I, don't, I don't know that I'm ready for that jelly. It's a jiggle. And that jiggle don't lie. That jiggle don't lie, okay? So, the best kind of planet to find is the massive kind, because that's tugging on the planet all the more. So you that said it. You definitely you look... said it. Okay. okay. That is the best plan. Your gestures also look like you're having uh, sex with one of those giant creatures from Avatar. Or a butter churn. <laughs> all right. All right, let's go. Let's okay, so... Back to the massive planet. The massive planet jiggle the host star. So our first 500 planets... Wait, so you're saying the, the uh, huge, huge planets cause the star itself to move? To move, and it's the movement of the star back and forth yeah. from our point of view... We measure, in fact, the Doppler shift of the planet in not a fundamentally different way from the way police measure with their radar the speed of your car. So the first 500 planets in the catalog are Jupiter-sized. But we really, at the end of the day, we want to find Earths. Yeah. Kepler's designed to find Earths, so it's a different method. So it watches solar systems, that are star systems, that are oriented edge-on. And when they're edge-on, planets in that system then eclipse the host star. So you monitor the light of the host star, and then it takes a dip. And it stays dipped for a while, and then it comes back out. 
And that dip, the depth of that dip, the width of that dip, gives you the size of this planet and the orbital period. And that will tell you exactly where it is in orbit around the host star, enabling you to calculate how big it is and whether or not it is in the Goldilocks zone, the habitable zone where water, in the presence of an atmosphere, would remain liquid. Too close, you vaporized. You become steam. Too far away, you freeze. And life as we know it requires liquid water. So the holy grail in the planet search is an Earth-like planet in the Goldilocks zone. And three weeks ago, Kepler, the telescope, the 22nd object in its catalog, the second planet in the star system, Kepler 22b. A Goldilocks planet, the first ever. Not too hard, not too soft, not, not too hot, not too cold. Not too hot, not too cold. Just right. The perfect temperature for a, a young girl to fall asleep. <laughs> so also you're saying there's no steam aliens. Well, we don't know. All we know is to look for life as we know it. How far away is it? It is 600 light years away. Let's build a generation ship. <laughs> So, That's all I needed I th- to hear. I think we already have a captain for it. <laughs> so the, the right stuff would include fertility tests in a generation ship. Apparently. <laughs> so I don't know if you want to do this because the fastest ships we've ever built that didn't even have humans on it, just hardware, with no intent of bringing them back. Yeah. Because machines don't care if you bring Are them back. Are they faster than a Porsche Cayenne? <laughs> That's really the slowest of the Porsches, you understand. Yes, in fact, actually. <laughs> so the fastest the astronauts go is like five miles per second. We've sent hardware seven, 10, 15 miles per second out the solar system. Right. Okay. At that speed, if we could put you on that in your generation ship to go to Kepler 22b, 600 light years away, yes. if you do the math, comes out to be somewhere about 40 million years. Wow. So we would have to fold space to really do this. No, you'd have to be (laughs) really fertile. You'd have to be really fertile or fold a lot of space. (laughs) Or you'd need a Stargate like the kind in Buck Rogers. No, you need to warp space. In the sheet of paper I have here, you want to cross a vast gap in space. You warp it so that one edge comes close to the other, and then you have to cut a hole, like a wormhole, through space, then you unfold it again, and there you are, far away from where you once were, and you got there during the TV commercial. Is that a, is that and a that's thing? what Star Trek did. Is that within the realm of physics as we understand it? Yes. Or no? that it is. is not precluded by laws of physics, and the only limits are on engineering and our capacity to wield extreme sources of energy. So we need a nuclear space folder. No, no. That that I'm going to build. Okay, so right now, you need need a bucket of energy. Here's the problem. Right now, our energy, we're like extracting it from fossil fuels beneath our feet. Right. This is as primitive as it gets. But it is American. It is (laughs) American. Next. We would have to send Iran itself into space. (laughs) So the next level here is if you master the forces of energy that Earth exhibits... So imagine tapping a volcano for the energy that it contained sure. and using it for our purposes. And a volcano there, space folder? Okay, we're getting there. You need, you it turns to, out that's not even enough energy. You need to build a lava drive. Well, okay, so you have lava. Now hurricanes come and ready to level a city. Right. You tap the cyclonic energy of the hurricane to drive the energy needs of the city that the hurricane might have otherwise leveled. 
Imagine that power over nature. We are far from that at this moment. So all really the energy on Earth is insufficient. The next level of energy is you find a way to capture all the energy from your star. Mm -hmm. That's not enough energy. What? To, to tear a wormhole where the sun don't shine? What if you blow up a sun inside a black hole? No. So here's what happens. You and need could shoot it with a rifle. You need the energy of all the stars in a galaxy channeled to tear a hole through the fabric of space and time. We do not wield that much energy, nor will we at any time in the foreseeable future. So this wormhole concept. Wait a minute. You find this beautiful planet. Yeah. Uh, you name a drink after it. You put it up there. Like, look at this. This great investment of, of our blood and treasure, the Kepler telescope, and now you're sitting here depressing me, saying no human can ever get there, no robot can ever get can there. Can you just shoot your ship up a little bit higher? Yeah. A little <laughs> bit higher, and then you'll get there sooner. Sooner than 40 million years? Yeah. So what's the energy you would need to do this? So there's no known energy that you're Yeah, aware. it's about the energy of all the stars and all the galaxy. That would take to fold space. Yes, so what, in, in this so what, way, to tear a hole in space and keep it open while you travel through it. It seems like that might hurt us. If, if, it, <laughs> if it collapses down on you. Look, I'm glad to know that it's there, I guess. There are a lot of things in my life that I cannot have. But what do we gain by There's knowing that this planet exists? Okay, so what do we gain? The knowledge that perhaps we're not alone. Sometimes the knowledge itself can be transformative. Consider, for example, the first image brought back from NASA of Earthrise over the lunar landscape. That image didn't otherwise put food on your plate. It didn't otherwise directly affect anything, but it changed how we saw Earth. Here was a mission to the moon, and for the first time, we saw Earth. A change in perspective and a change in attitude can galvanize a nation in a way that, in fact, you can trace the modern conservation movement to the day that image was published. Are you talking about the climate change conspiracy? <laughs> <laughs> or are you talking about Woodstock? <laughs> Ideas can be deeply influential on a sure. culture. Name one idea <laughs> that's influenced... So let's imagine life on the Goldilocks planet, Kepler-22b, it's two and a half times the diameter of the Earth. And the math works out so that, in fact, if it had the same sort of density as Earth, but was two and a half times bigger, you'd weigh two and a half times more. And they'd beat us up. They'd I see everything as conquering. Yeah, so that, if they came here, not only would they be able to have all the power of all of the stars in the universe, but yeah. they'd punch us very hard. Yeah, if they're accustomed to supporting that much weight in their moving bodies, yeah. we would be trivial to conquer, for sure. But there are other creatures where their weight doesn't really matter, like fishes. They're neutrally buoyant. You know, insects... Bacteria, they don't care what they I weigh. I definitely hope that on that planet there aren't insects that could come here and beat us up. <laughs> that didn't go so well in Starship Troopers. No, it did not. And I don't know that we would benefit from it. <laughs> All right, when we come back, I just want to get a sense of what the future will bring in space or not. Yeah. You've been listening to Star Talk Radio. You can like us on Facebook. Good Find try. us at Star Talk okay. Radio. And we'll be back in just a moment. We are live from the Bell House in Brooklyn!
Welcome back to Star Talk Radio. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson. We're continuing the broadcast of our second live show, recorded at the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York, on December 18th, 2011. Joining me that night were my co-host, the comedian Eugene Merman, the comedians Kristen Schaal and John Hodgman, and Mike Massimino, a NASA astronaut who flew on two space shuttle missions to repair the Hubble Space Telescope. So in this segment, I just want to talk about the future. Mike, you've been in space, but now we don't have a vehicle to get out of low Earth orbit. Do you still dream about going into space? Culturally, personally, what? Yeah, I think we are a space-faring species. We have grown up with people going to space. You know, when I was a little kid, to the moon. Right now, we've ended the shuttle program, but we're hopefully going to be getting a, a, a vehicle to launch people not only to the space station... We have some private companies that are coming very close to being able to launch people to the space station, but right. we're also going to be looking to go beyond low Earth orbit as well. So I think right now we're, you know, we're flying with our friends, with our Russian colleagues, and so we still have access. We have Americans in space right now. If you, like, if yeah. you had said in, in 1980 mm-hmm. that in the year 2011, which is what this is, Americans would not be going into space unless they're hitching a ride on a Russian space vehicle, Ronald Reagan would shoot you in the head. Yeah. Well, right, right. And John, it's worse than that. Well, thank in, you. Worse than Ronald Reagan <laughs> shooting you in the head? Go on. It's worse than that. In the 60s and 70s, there were two spacefaring nations. In the 2010s, there are still two spacefaring nations, but one of them is not the United States. It's China. China. It is China. Yeah. That is the tragedy of this history. You hate Chinese people. No! <laughs> You know how we can get to Mars? Practice, practice, practice. (laughs) I got a whole book on this coming out. Uh Uh-huh. February 2012. I was going to say, when's it coming out, Neil? (laughs) February 2012. It's called Space Chronicles. But in there, all we have to do, I do this. I'll go to China and go to the head of state and just whisper, I say, Leak a memo that says you want to put military bases on Mars. Just le- it doesn't have to be true. Just leak it. We catch a hold of that memo, we're on Mars 14 months later. Because that's what drives us. We tell ourselves we're spacefaring, we're discoverers, we're explorers. We went to the moon because we were at war with the Ruskies. At war. That's what drove it. And you know what happened when Bush Sr.? In 1989, on July 20th, the 20th anniversary of the Apollo landing, he got on the steps of the Air and Space Museum and tried to give a Kennedy-esque speech and said, let us go back into space, to the moon and Mars and beyond. It fell on deaf ears. You know why? Not because he lacked the charisma of Kennedy. Not because people thought... I said, it's not because of that. It's not because it cost a lot of money. You know, they'll say that that's why, but that's not the reason why. You know what happened in 1989? Peace broke out in Europe. The wall came down. There was no longer the motivating force. God damn it! That's why it didn't continue. So we have to shed blood to get back out there. No, so I don't want that to happen. I'm just saying we should be honest with the original motivations. That's, you can say, we did it because it's in our DNA, bull Oni. Yes, it's in our DNA, but somebody's got the right to check, and it's not in their DNA. <laughs> Another driver is just simply an economic driver. And it's the one that I put forth. 
if you reinvest in NASA and think big, you go to Mars, okay? Everybody says, hey, we're going to Mars, and who's that astronaut class? Well, they're in middle school now. Let's track them. Are they eating well? Or now it's getting creepy. Teen Beat will write about them. People want to emulate Teen them. Teen Beat ended in 1961. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Whatever writes about Justin Bieber will write about them. They become the astronauts who land on Mars. And the whole nation participates in that exercise. I and just wish you were right, but you're so wrong because we can't even name the five women that won Nobel Prizes, one for economics, but we can name five supermodels who walked down Victoria's Secrets in bras. I can name neither. We're just off. We're <laughs> off. Like, our whole culture isn't centered on intelligence and space vision. It's just not going to happen. There was an error when, in fact, it was. That's why I think it yeah, can well, be reclaimed. Yeah, well, it's dead now. I, well, I want to resurrect the hopeful it. hopeful Kristen show. Give me a bra! But obviously, but obviously the Chinese don't feel that way. Are the Chinese gunning for space? Yes. Because of a practical application or because of national stature? It's national stature, primarily. Because basically what you're saying to me is, we're never going to reach Kepler 22b. Yes. Mars is an arbitrary object anyway. We're all just doing this for bragging rights. <laughs> no, no, I think, I, no, I claim that if it becomes part of our culture once again, people will want to become scientists and engineers, and even those who don't will be sensitized to the ambitions of a scientific and engineeringly driven culture. So you vote for the right people who allocate those monies. Yeah. So then... Then you and galvanize the nation, and guess what happens? Yeah. That culture fosters innovations in science and technology, even outside of space, and it births new economies in the 21st century, which are required if you want to compete internationally with your economic strength. And, and war and economic drivers are the two <laughs> biggest... We the, need an iPad war! <laughs> war the and second, economic drivers. The second biggest driver of human action after war is money. If I thought we can, you were going to say porn. What? That's the third, I hope. <laughs> Actually, did you know astrophysics, the study of the universe, is the second oldest profession? <laughs> it just is. Now I do. Okay. Apparently, you don't know about blacksmiths. Okay. <laughs> I will say this that we do know that innovation itself is extremely expensive. And that if you want to say something other than the touchy-feely stuff that you're talking about, there's a practical application, which is that a publicly funded space program has traditionally driven innovation and particularly miniaturization of computing power, right? Which obviously affects our life today very seriously. So to continue that, you would actually publicly fund innovation in a way that would trickle down, to use a terrible term, to everyone. And in fact, innovation is so expensive and in the private market so not worth following that it's actually there's a real reason for public investment in these things. So do you think the future of space exploration is going to fall in public hands or in private enterprises? The moving frontier of space exploration can never fall in the hands of the private sector because the frontier is dangerous and has uncertain risks. And, and there's profit. nothing more fearsome to the investor than uncertain risks. So a government takes that on, they get the patents, they take the risks, they have the failures, they create the charts and the maps, then they hand it over to the next generation of the entrepreneurs. And they then can exploit all of the now known risks 
in the capital markets. And that's how it's always been. The Dutch East India Trading Company was not the first to get to America from Europe. They were the first to the moon, though. Let's face it. <laughs> but isn't it kind of what's happening, hopefully happening now, with low-Earth orbit, not going No, beyond. no, because we've already been to low-Earth orbit. Right. So you hand that over. No reason Here you NASA, go, Richard Branson. No reason NASA should go. NASA been there, done that. Let yeah. somebody else do it. It'll do it for less. Let's then Subway, the restaurant right. company. <laughs> You're right. hungry. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Innovation, yes, it's expensive, but you need a driver to have everyone participate. And I'm just submitting that when your vision is big, so too are your ambitions. And it's the synergy of that folded into the operations of our culture that will establish what our future is going to be as a nation. Do you think we could fold space on simply your love of science? Because I believe <laughs> we maybe could. You will single-handedly get America to reinvest in public space programs. I'm trying. Yes. Guys, we got to wrap this up. Oh. Oh, yeah, no. Uh, actually, Do we're going to have a Q&A session with you guys. Yeah. A, a quick one, a quick Q&A. A four-hour Q&A no. session. Yeah. <laughs> right in front row, yeah. My question was with generational travel. Wouldn't it seem if we did send, say, for example, a ship out there, that by the time it was a quarter of the way through the journey, wouldn't we be zipping past them in the ultra-upgraded ship that is now 200 times better than that? Kind of like the horse and buggy versus, you know, they'll be flying past in like a pinto or something. Yeah, so what you're saying is if it takes 20 million years to get there yeah. and I send you on your right. route, right. then in... 10 million years from now. Yeah, right. Oh, in a mere 10 million years, we'll get there in a right. few seconds and just yeah. whiz by and, and see. So would it even make sense to do any kind of generational travel at that point because we don't have the answers? Here's the problem. That argument was given about going to the moon. They said, mm. why go to the moon now? It's so expensive. Let's wait 30 years when mm. it's really cheap. Yeah. Um, at some point, you just got to do. Just do. And so while you may be right, mm -hmm. what I would imagine is 10 million years, you pick them up on the way. Right. <laughs> Honestly, I think what we know is we should definitely wait till we can fold space. <laughs> it's yeah. Come on, people. And what, what's curious to me is what we don't know is when you send a fertile community yeah. forward, that becomes an isolated human gene pool. Right. And so it's susceptible to all the things that could happen in isolated gene pools. Everyone grows right. antlers is what he's talking about. <laughs> They're they, going to honestly have some pretty cool community theater, so I wouldn't worry. <laughs> so, no, they, they, could, they could speciate. Or we could speciate differently from they. And then we would just branch, have two yeah. different branches. Like Balkans like and Romulans, you know. <laughs> <laughs> when Star Talk Radio continues, we'll have more audience questions from our live show at the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York. Welcome back to Star Talk Radio. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Let's get right back into some audience questions posed at the Bell House during our live show with Eugene Merman, Kristen Shaw, John Hodgman, and NASA astronaut Mike Massimino. This question's for Mike. So during your mission, you're replacing some sort of panels, and there's this handle, and you had to unscrew the handle, and one of the screws stripped. Stalker! And so, <laughs> no, this is PBS special. It was on tonight. Uh, whatever. But, um, 
the engineers were trying to figure out how to fix this thing, and they said to break it. And you basically broke this handle off of the Hubble telescope. And how'd you do that? There's a long explanation as to why that happened, but basically, in order to repair this instrument, which had a panel that we had to remove, and we had to remove a circuit board and put a new one in, there was a handrail in the way. We thought it was going to be very easy to remove. It had big screws, which were usually easy to, to undo. You spent two years practicing. Spent two years practicing. It wasn't a problem in practice, but we had a problem with one of the screws. Three of them came out easily, and one couldn't budge, and we could not repair this instrument, which was going to unlock the secrets of the universe and try to find these Earth-like planets or whatever. We couldn't do that until I can get this handle out of the way. And these engineers on the ground had to act very quickly because, you know, the clock was ticking and they just told me just to rip it off. The way I did that, what I thought of when I grabbed my hand around that handrail was I thought of my Uncle Frank, when I was a little kid, was having trouble with an oil filter in his car, right? Comes across the street and he's, you know, it's all greasy and he's looking for my dad. My dad goes down a basement and grabs a gigantic screwdriver and tells me, come across the street, maybe you'll learn something. And he knocks a screwdriver through the oil filter and gets out of the way. My Uncle Frank grabs a rag and grabs the big screwdriver and starts yanking on this thing until finally, he, and he was cursing, of course, until he finally could get the oil filter to budge. And I swear to you, that's exactly what I was thinking of inside the Hubble Space Telescope. I was like, this one's Your for Uncle you, Frank. Uncle Frank. That's what I was thinking of, the oil filter and my Uncle Frank. And Let's hear it for Uncle Frank. Next question right here, ma'am. Hi. Hey. So I'm about to finish my PhD. I study planetary volcanology, and I want nice. to be an astronaut. So I was wondering if Mike has any advice for someone who might want to apply for the astronaut program, how to get noticed. Well, you know, right now we are taking applications. Does everyone know that? Mm -hmm. This doesn't happen all the time. It used to happen when I was applying. It was about every two years. We had a class in 2009. We'll probably have another one in uh, 2012 probably, hopefully. Get your applications in now. I don't know. The deadline's coming up, I think, too. February, maybe? <clears throat> All right. Well, you know, you've got till then, and then that's going to be it. <laughs> How do I stand out? How do I make myself The real good? trick is the essay question. <laughs> maybe a video. Uh, yeah. re remember that the people that are going to be reading your application are probably people like me, astronauts, right? So try to make it easy to read. Okay. <laughs> if you can make it simple, what you did, there's probably going to be someone in your field that might read it too. Use you know, the word vertiginous as much as possible. <laughs> yeah. Be careful with the words you use. <laughs> <laughs> and, and send him a peanut butter pizza. Yes. <laughs> and remember, lots of people like me and many others are in the same position you were. Okay? So there's hope. So try to be as positive as you can about it. Represent yourself well and hope for the best. And in case people didn't know, Earth does not have the most active volcanoes in the solar system. They are found on the moons of Jupiter. And if you're a planetary volcanologist, which is Vulcan amazing, that you can <laughs> <laughs> Just power to you. There's a lot of volcanoes in the solar system waiting for your attention. And do you also do ice volcanoes? I'd like to. Add them Not to your yet. resume. They are the future of volcanoes. Because a volcano we think of as hot simply because on Earth, the gases that build up need to be heated. There are environments where all you just need is something to evaporate and put pressure. And there are liquids that go gaseous at deeply frozen temperatures pressure builds up at 100 degrees below zero and they hurl chunks of ice and you have an ice volcano so keep those on your resume I will, thank Good you luck. You got it. Good luck Just a few more questions Lightning round This Light is a question for Neil, I know your favorite planet is Saturn Indeed, maybe Earth but Saturn close second Okay, so I was wondering what your thoughts or maybe even a hypothesis of the hexagon located at the pole 
The hexagon on the pole of Saturn yeah. remains one of the greatest mysteries that I've ever seen in the solar system, and I think it's awesome. There's a hexagon in the structure of the gas clouds in the poles of Saturn. Clouds don't make hexagons. They're making it on Saturn. There have been some people who have duplicated that in the lab right, with I very special conditions, yeah. but this is happening naturally, just on its own. So, or is it? Or yeah. is it? <laughs> so it's, it's a mystery. It's a fun mystery. Last question of the night. Yes. Mine's double or nothing. Um, my question is about the ultra Hubble deep field image. Yes. It's with relativity and the expansion of the universe. What's happening 180 degrees away from the other angle that we took the Hubble deep field image? Are we seeing the same universe or the same galaxies? Are we seeing different galaxies? Excellent. So amazing photo that the Hubble telescope took, enabled by the handy repairs of this right. gentleman. That. He pulled the handle off a thing. <laughs> With a screwdriver. <laughs> so we look out. We find a, what we think is a very uninteresting patch of sky where there are no stars in our own galaxy to get in the way. And we take the Hubble telescope, open up its shutter, and just stare right. for hours and hours and hours. And we accumulate that light. Are we high at the time? Why are we no. <laughs> The camera stares. And we accumulate the very weak light signals, and as you stare long enough, the weak signal becomes stronger and stronger in your detector, and so the dimmest things in the universe reveal themselves, and it's called the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. Right. There was a previous image called the Hubble Deep Field. We said, now that we know how to do it, let's go ultra. And it is one patch of sky, one one-hundredth the area of the full moon in one direction in the universe. And you see like a gazillion galaxies in this picture, this one patch postage stamp on the night sky. And so you can say, I'm looking at this small area and there's this many galaxies. Let me multiply it by every possible one of these directions. I get a count for how many galaxies in the universe. You get about 50 to 100 billion. So you might say, well, how do I know that? Maybe this direction is completely different. Maybe 180 degrees is different. Maybe this direction is the same as that direction in a looped, folded universe. Mm -hmm. We've actually done that experiment. So, there's a Hubble deep field north, and we went 180 degrees, and went a Hubble deep field south. And it is statistically indistinguishable from Hubble deep field north, giving us the confidence that our inferences from this one direction, doubled up in a completely opposite direction, gives us a representative sample of what any direction we would reveal in the universe. And we look for pattern recognition. Is their pattern the same? Could it be the same but flipped? Left, right, up, down, it is different. The universe does not loop back on itself. It is a one-way expansion. And the Hubble Deep Field is, in fact, probing the universe on scales never before seen that will soon be surpassed by the James Webb Space Telescope. Guys, this has been our second Bell House Live Star Talk. And Eugene, you invite us back here to do of this. Of course. No, this was awesome. We had so much fun. You always bring in some great folks here. Yes. Kristen, John, it's been awesome. Mike. And Mike Wonderful. Massimino, the man. <laughs> You've been listening to Star Talk Radio, brought to you in part by a grant from the National Science Foundation. As always, keep looking up. <laughs> <laughs>